Hello and welcome to the Warrior Nation podcast, a deep dive into military affairs and the relationship between defence, the armed forces and civil society in modern Britain, produced and edited by Forces Watch. Forces Watch is a UK organisation dedicated to investigating militarisation, military ethics and human rights concerns. We expose and challenge unethical military recruitment practices, issues affecting personnel and veterans, and initiatives that aim to build support for war. I'm Joe Glenton. I'm a former soldier, Afghanistan veteran, author, defence journalist, and now Forces Watch comms officer. I'm Rihanna Louise, working on education and outreach at Forces Watch. My key areas of research and advocacy have been around British military recruitment practices, the campaign to raise the minimum age of recruitment to 18, militarisation and the anti-militarist movement. This is the final episode of our first Warrior Nation series. We're going to discuss how Forces Watch began and delve into recruitment and militarism in the UK with Forces Watch's founders, David G and Emma Sangster. David G is an author and researcher who has produced a number of research papers on issues impacting military personnel, including Informed Choice, Armed Forces Recruitment Practice in the United Kingdom, The Last Ambush, Aspects of Mental Health in the British Armed Forces, and The First Ambush, Effects of Army Training and Employment. He also wrote a book called Spectacle, Reality and Resistance, Confronting a Culture of Militarism, in which he describes how at a comfortable distance from warfare, our culture easily passes over its reality in favour of an appealing, even romantic, spectacle of war. And Emma Sangster worked with peace and social justice organisations for many years before she founded Forces Watch with David in 2010, and she is now our coordinator. Thanks for coming on, Emma and David. Um, the UK is a heavily militarised country, and our attitudes to the military are, are very distinct. Um, and as a result, the military sometimes appears, if not to be immune from criticism, but to be insulated from it. Um, so it's a very powerful organisation to, to take on and start to critique. And what brought you um, to the point where you decided to take up that role? Uh, well, it goes back to about 2006, um, when uh, I became aware that there, there wasn't really any organisation uh, working systematically on the recruitment of young people into the military as an ethical problem. Uh, and uh, at that point, I applied for some funding from the Joseph Roger Charitable Trust to look into this and draw up a report asking a basic question, which was, are the young people approached to enlist the military given what they would need in order to make an informed choice about that decision? Is it in their best interests? And uh, I wrote that report and it was released to the media. And it turned out there was a lot of interest in this in the media uh, in Parliament, but also among other other organisations and among the public as well. I remember organising a workshop uh, where you were talking about yeah. the report and um, about what the possibilities were for taking the work forward and the need really for an organisation to, to exist that would take that work forward. I also remember feeling that there was a um, a real sense of the sophistication of recruitment, marketing, stepping up, and also the promotion of the military more generally in the media and government sort of really ratcheting up a bit, and, and that needed some kind of response. Yeah, I remember at that workshop there was a teacher who came uh, from his school where the military had gone in to recruit uh, his students, and he was concerned about the way in which the military were doing that. and. Um, he was saying, where can I get support? Where can I get some help to deal with this in my school? What can I do? And that's when we talked, you and I talked, Emma, about the possibility of setting something up that would support 
people in his kind of situation to support him and other people to respond to that. Uh, yeah. And uh, otherwise, the military is given more or less a carte blanche mm. to do whatever it wants to do with young people in schools and in other places as well. Yeah. And I remember feeling that it was really important that people like him didn't feel totally isolated and alone with that concern that they had and not seeing that reflected mm. in other people's debate uh, and, and that we needed to at least reflect that that was a normal response to the military um, coming into their school or college. Yeah, Forces Watch's own research found that 11,000 schools are being visited every year. We know this is happening up and down uh, the four nations of the UK and we know there are many teachers out there who are concerned about this but might not necessarily know what to do. And there are youth leaders as well, there are young people themselves who are concerned about it. And uh, we felt there needed to be something that would be uh, a resource and ready to support people like that who wanted to respond in a, um, in a meaningful and effective way to that uh, approach to young people. I just want to pick up on something you were saying there. I mean, you said that not only is the military being promoted increasingly to young people, but also to society in general. Mm. And if you could explain a bit more what we mean when we talk about militarism at Forces Watch, how we've arrived by our definition of it and the ways in which we see it happening in the UK. Yes, I mean, certainly when we were starting Forces Watch, we, we got a sense that something was happening, but we didn't really understand what it was. And it was only later, once we began to sort of monitor and research it, that we really began to see how... Um, in the sort of policy and practice of the government and the military and also just the commentary and public debate, that there was a concerted effort to promote the military that can be traced through policy and practice. Um, one um, quote that we really like is, is from Cynthia Lowe, who's an eminent commentator on militarism. And she says that to become militarised is to adopt militaristic values and priorities as one's own to see military solutions as particularly effective, to see the world as a dangerous place best approached through, with militaristic attitudes. And when we've looked at how militarism is promoted through policy and practice, we define it really um, in three ways. The first is the normalisation of war and preparation for war. The second is prioritising the needs and interests of military institutions. And the third is the extension of military culture and influence into everyday life. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that in education, in local government, in national government, um, and also the business, charity and um, third Quite sector. Why is it that, uh, that the UK is so militaristic? Well, first, we have to establish that the UK is a more militaristic country relative to others. I mean, most uh, nation states are militaristic to some degree. Um, they have armed forces and um, they are prepared to um, engage in warfare with other states or in other ways. Um, the UK is, however, more militaristic than, say, other Europe, most other European states. Um, one of the reasons for this is that um, the, the UK has historically both in the public imagination and in the establishment's imagination, looks to the military as uh, proof of its status in the world, proof of its strength in the world, um, a ticket to be at the top table of the global powers. Um, since the UK's um, empire uh, no longer exists, um, it's had to adjust over a period of 100 years or so to um, a new status in the world of not being, not, not being in charge of the world, um, to put it sort of bluntly, 
Um, but it's still trying to hang on to this sense of being an important state, a special state, a special country. And the way it does that principally is by uh, saying that is by investing heavily in military um, capabilities, expeditionary forces. These are forces that are, can go abroad and start a war abroad and then come back again. Very few um, countries in the world have the capability to do that. So it's invested in its military as a kind of jewel in its uh, strategic power in the world. And then it's hitched its wagon to the United States military uh, strategic policy um, to say we will have 10% uh, of the battle space. Britain can take on 10% of the battle space alongside the United States and therefore be an invaluable strategic partner to the United States and then keep its place at the top table of world powers. So there's a lot of status attached to uh, the military and uh, this is, is uh, I would say it's about na a feeling of national self-esteem uh, which is attached to uh, Britain's military power. Uh, other states don't have that as strongly. Uh, mm. Germany, for example, is very wary about um, the use of the military for obvious reasons now. Uh, after the Second World War, uh, as a society, it had a reckoning with what happened uh, during the Second World War and has become very wary of calls for German armed forces to be used in aggressive actions abroad. Whereas the UK is always the first to jump on the, the US bandwagon when the US wants to start another war. It's, it's done that consistently, in fact, since the end of the uh, millennium, since the beginning of the new millennium. I just wanted to ask you a bit more about militarism as spectacle. What do you mean by that? It's first important to recognise that war is the most horrific, abhorrent thing people can do to one another. And it's normalised through a culture of militarism. It's made normal, it's, it's sanitised, and not only that, this is where it becomes a spectacle, it's made something uh, into, into something that's exciting and even entertaining. So, for example, you have uh, military narratives and military uh, technology, um, which is then used uh, to develop computer games, which are uh, basically based on the, the software that the military have, uh, have, have um, developed themselves. Mm. So we can play at war on the computer. Uh, we have um, in the the time of the uh, Kosovo War and the, also the, the Persian Gulf War in 1991 um, and Kosovo War in 1999, um, we were shown on the television uh, images of laser-guided bombs falling from the air and landing on a target uh, on the ground. And this was presented to us ostensibly to show how uh, clean this new warfare was. Obviously, there's nothing clean about it at all in reality, but it's presented as clean. So it's presented as a spectacle in that respect, not as reality. Uh, but also something that's entertaining to watch. It's exciting to watch this bomb fall, uh, uh, fall through the air and find its target. So in these ways, and many others as well, the war is turned into a spectacle that we can actually enjoy. And by enjoying um, the spectacle of war through popular entertainment and other ways, um, it becomes something that's normalised uh, and the actual reality of the war, which is um, essentially bodies being blown apart, is taken out of um, the picture. And that way war is presented as a spectacle. Other than the general sense of it's valuable to the military as PR, what are the key outcomes of that process of turning war into a spectacle? 
Well, there's two things there. One is that the military and the defence establishment or the military establishment um, have to, in a, in a representative democracy, bring uh, the public on board with whatever war happens to be next. Uh, they have to do that, otherwise they can't go to war. Um, so one of the functions of the spectacle is to convince uh, the public that the next war is going to be a righteous and necessary war. Uh, that's one of the functions of it. The other is to attract uh, people into the armed forces in the first place. The armed forces, big organisation, um, well over 100,000 uh, personnel, um, and uh, a lot of people are leaving every year, so they have to recruit uh, thousands of people every year. Uh, and they tend to uh, be looking at the youngest age groups in order to fill those ranks. So by presenting uh, war and militarism as a heroic, sanitised, uh, necessary public service, they hope to attract more young people into the armed forces in the first place. Um, they do that, therefore, in a misleading way, because they're not presenting the reality of war. They're not presenting the real purposes of many of these wars to young people. Um, they are presenting uh, a, a spectacle of war, but also a spectacle of life in the armed forces, where you're going to feel um, like you're fulfilling a useful role, you're going to feel like you've got great mates, you're going to feel like you're developing. The truth is that only 43% of people in the army actually like being in the army. Um, fewer than half of the soldiers in the army would actually recommend the army to other people. That's the truth of military service, but obviously it's a, uh, what's presented is a glamorised, glossy version of military life, which intentionally misleads young people into enlisting into something they don't before they can really fully recognise what that what that something is going to be. Then they then face these terms of service which are so restrictive they would be illegal in any civilian employment. Uh, if a civilian employer tried to impose the terms of service that are imposed on young people who join the army, they'd be taken to court because they'd be um, in, in defiance of workers' rights. But the military have exceptions for all these things. Of course, that's not explained to young people either, not fully explained at all, that on the day you turn 18, um, you will be stuck in the army for the next four years of your life with no right to leave whatsoever. And if you try to leave, you will be put in prison. You'll be put in Colchester, what they call um, the military correctional facility. It's basically prison in Colchester. Well. Yes, you know it well, <laughs> You know it first hand, I believe. Um, and I'm sure you'd recommend no one wants to go there. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, these are some of the ways in which the, the, the spectacle functions to uh, attract young people into the armed forces by presenting them a, what is effectively a misleading prospectus of military life. Um, and then once they're in the military, imposing these terms of service on them, which makes it very difficult mm. to leave. Sure. Some of the work that we've done at Forces Watch and that you've done a lot, lot of, David, is to shed light on some of the things that they're not told in this spectacle that they, they, they may not be aware of. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about some of those risks, some of those long-term harms that young people might face. Sure. Well, the day you turn up from army training, um, you are stuck on the army estate for the next six weeks. You're not allowed to leave the army estate at any point during those first six weeks. You're allowed, uh, your mobile phone is taken off you for those first six weeks. Don't think and you're allowed to make, no, uh, they wouldn't <laughs> like this at all. And you're allowed to make one phone call every evening. Um, you, you get your phone back, given back to you for this one phone call every evening. And that's all the contact you have with your um, civilian friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are basically uh, trapped in that place for six weeks. 
It's a forcing house to turn a young civilian who has all sorts of norms that they've grown up with into a soldier who will obey any order without question, not only without question, but by reflex. They're given an order, they will enact that order before they've even had a chance to think about it. And the military needs to do that because it can't fight wars unless it has a load of people who are going to do that on reflex without thought. Um, so it's a forcing house for young people. And every, every action that the trainers um, take in order to um, train those young people is, uh, is aimed at making sure those young people obey without question. Um, they're told that um, their regiment is the best regiment, it's better than the one down the road. Uh, they're told that the army is better than the Navy and the Air Force. They're told that the British Armed Forces are better than the French Armed Forces and so on. So there's also this uh, narrative of uh, glory attached to being a soldier in the first place. And the sophisticated system of reward and punishment over those first six weeks in particular will turn that young person into an obedient um, soldier. Now, some young people don't get on with that well. Um, they resist or they simply can't keep up. And those young people are ostracized from the main group. So as the training process develops, you have a very strong peer bond, which the group form as a protective measure against the stresses of the training system. And if you fall outside of that, you are um, then uh, likely to experience bullying. Uh, you're letting everyone down. If you do something wrong, they'll punish the entire group. And all of these psychological tricks are employed day and night through the military. They'll get you marching um, for hours on end, and then they'll, after you're really stressed and uh, um, distressed by that process, they'll put you through bayonet drill, because at that point, that's when you've got to drive a, a blade to a, a mock-up of another person's body. So they're using these um, coercive psychological uh, techniques to wear down, deplete the resistance of the young people to the military regime to a point where the young people give up and they um, basically stop resisting, they accept the military uh, norms, they accept the military orders and they will obey those orders by reflex and then basically they are then soldiers. But the process that they young, those young people go through is never reversed when you leave the army. It's never, or, or any of the other armed forces for that matter, it's never something, there's, a, there's a, a process where you untrain that. So you live with that for the rest of your life, and obviously some veterans live with that fairly well, but for many it's a, a very difficult um, task to readjust to civilian life after having left the armed forces. Mm. So those are, that's the process that uh, young people go through, but on top of that you have to realise that the military is a, is a hyper-masculine institution. It valorizes masculinity, and any kind of um, uh, falling short of that is characterized as failure, and um, that means it's a place where um, there's a lot of bullying. Uh, sexual harassment is much more common than in other professions as well. Um, and of course, this is, there's only about 10% of the army or armed forces who are women. They're in a minority group, and they're at greater risk because of that, being in a military system where um, these hyper-masculine values are, are, are so uh, prime and really part of the whole, whole culture.
it particularly interests me that we're talking about bringing 16 and 17 year olds into that intense training exactly. environment. Yeah, and I say that as an adult joiner who didn't do right, bayonet exactly. training, who didn't, who was not in a combat arm, and, and even I feel that, and many others who are in more technical trades do. Mm. So for a 16 year old. Research tells us that long term harms are more prevalent among people who were recruited at a young age. Um, you know, I wonder how much training. Um, is a, I know you've written about this, David, how much training is a cause of that, but I think there's obviously so many different factors there. It's not only that you're bringing young people at a time when their brain is still not fully developed into that intense environment. It's also to do with targeting young people who are more likely to have particular vulnerabilities because of things in their background and also to do with channeling them into more dangerous roles and the kinds of trauma that they might then experience if they go into a career in the military. It's worth saying here that the, the UK has the lowest enlistment age at 16 in Europe and only a handful of other countries worldwide all still recruit at that, mm-hmm. still, still, still recruit at that age. So it's very unusual. And at that point in an adolescence development, the brain isn't fully developed. Um, and these are the parts of the brain that are not fully developed are the parts of the brain that can make decisions responsibly that have long-term effects. So the military is intentionally targeting an age group that is less able to make an informed choice because of their developmental situation at 15, which is when you can actually apply to join the army. Um, so you join on your 16th birthday, um, less able to do that than they would be if they were enlisting 18 year old. The other reason that matters is because the brain is less able to withstand conditions of chronic stress um, at that age because it's still developing. Again, at 18, it's still developing, so it's still vulnerable to that, but it's less vulnerable than it is at 16. So what the military are doing, possibly without realising this is happening, but they're piling um, conditions of stress on in order to get the the obedience out of recruits on um, young people who are much more reactive to that stress at that age in general than they would be if they were 18 or above. And that means that all the stress-related disorders, which are anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, are going to be more common um, among the younger stage group. When you add into that the fact that these aren't just young people, they're young people typically from very deprived backgrounds who have had difficult childhood experiences. Um, Many of them have had trouble with the police. Um, they've uh, been into fights in the street, fights in other public places, uh, and had difficulties at home. Um, they're already, because of those traumatic experiences at an early stage, more vulnerable to stress as well. So it's not just the age, it's the age combined with targeting this particularly deprived group of people in the poorest parts of the country, mm. mean that those stress-related mental health problems are more common among that group. And then you combine a third factor in, which is that the, this group tends to be recruited for the infantry in the army. This is the group, uh, the part of the army you don't need any qualifications to join at all. Um, it tends to be rejected by recruits who have other uh, trade options available to them because they have slightly better qualifications, and the army is always struggling to fill the infantry. And the infantry has the most stressful training, and it has by far the most... Um, stressful experiences in warfare. So the, the, uh, the, the rate of trauma in the infantry is much higher than it is in other uh, parts of the army, but also the rates of injury and death are much higher in, in the infantry than it is in other parts of the army as well. So this is the most vulnerable age group 
the most vulnerable socioeconomic background going into the most stressful part of the army. And then uh, the training is very stressful, but when they turn 18, they're also they could be there on the front line, uh, having the most susceptibility to those stresses as well. Um, this is why it's such a problem that the UK is still recruiting from 16, but not only that, but going out to the poorest parts of the country to, mm. to, to try to get recruited. Absolutely. But then if, I, if I'm if i talking, I give those arguments, and if I'm doing that on a radio show, what they all say to me is, but we're rescuing young people. There's dead-end jobs where they live, or there's no jobs where they live. Um, they're dropping out of school. They are just going to end up in prison or in a gang. They might bring on... Um, uh, you know, a, a person for whom that is actually the case and they do feel like the military rescued them. Well, if it is true that one young person um, growing up in a very poor neighbourhood has no other options at all but to join the army and be indoctrinated into obedience through a stressful process of psychological coercion, if that is their only option... What does that say about That should be a source of national shame. Absolutely. And it is for some people the only option that they can find. That, that is true. However, it's not quite as black and white as that either. 82% um, of the most deprived um, young people, most socioeconomically deprived young people, are now continuing in education after 16. And um, let's just make a distinction there. We're talking about civilian mainstream education yes. because obviously the military talks about Harrogate as being continuing education in a way, don't they? So. We well, can we can yeah. we can take issue with that for various reasons, but well, the the courses you would do as a, a trainee at sixteen in the military are um, English and maths courses, very basic. Employers don't recognise them; they're very short, and uh, they're just too basic really to count as a basic standard in English and maths. So the army is saying you can come to the army and carry on your education, but actually what they're getting is almost worthless. Mm. I mean, it's, it's good that it's there, but it's so little compared with what you would get in a civilian college. And if a civilian college tried to offer what the army was offering, it would be closed down because it would be illegal for the civilian college not to offer GCSE resets. Now, they say illegal, they'd have their funding taken away from them and they'd be shut down. So, And yet they're able to get an outstanding in Ofsted. When Ofsted go and um, inspect the Army Foundation College, as it's called, it's not a college, it's a military training centre, but it's called a college, uh, they don't actually inspect the quality of the education because the basis on which those inspections are made is a memorandum of understanding between the Ofsted and the MOD, Ministry of Defence, that says it will inspect the duty of care and welfare arrangements, which there's quite a lot at Harrogate. There are places you can go if you need to talk to somebody, yeah. which is great. But it's not Ofsted inspected in the sense mm -hmm. that any civilian college would be. It has such a high dropout rate of a third of the recruits there dropping out before they finish their full training. If a civilian college was losing a third of its recruits, it would be shut down. It doesn't offer GCSE resets. A civilian college would have its funding taken away if it did that. So, yes, it has an outstanding inspection grade from Ofsted, but the basis on that, of that inspection doesn't actually include the quality of the education. So it's very misleading. Mm. But, of course, how many young people and their parents know that when they hear that the Army mm. Foundation College has an outstanding inspection? Of course, they think it's like their school, um, but it's not like that at all. So it's already failing at least a third of the recruits yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of that sort of social mobility yeah. promise that it makes at the beginning. Mm. And then that they will struggle to find somewhere else to slot into yeah. once they've, they've left. That's yeah. the thing, and then it's a question of what happens to those young people who at 16 years old, 17 years old, had left. 
had possibly disengaged with education because they were really excited about joining the military, um, didn't get very good grades, didn't have the opportunity to reset their GCSEs and drop out. And then what happened to them? They had to slot in back into education or they have to find something different mm. to do. But I, th um, I think that social mobility narrative is so powerful mm. because everybody wants to believe it's true. I yeah. mean, politicians want to believe that, you know, young people in their constituency will be well served by joining the army. Um, we all want to believe that, um, well, if we must have people joining the army, you know, let these young people join and at least it's, it provides them an opportunity. It's, it's something that as a society we all buy into in a way. And it, it whether or not it's a, a myth or not, it's never really explored except, you know, by, by organisations yeah. like us. Could I, something came out earlier and I really want to just zoom out slightly and look at this in a, an international context. We're the only country in Europe who recruit 16-year-olds. Who else recruits 16-year-olds? around the world and what are the implications of Britain's stubbornly clinging on to recruiting very young people, children, um, for the, the global movement against, I suppose, what we would conventionally term child soldiers? Well, actually recently I was in Berlin on Red Hand Day, which is the International Day of Child, and child Soldiers, uh, and I was speaking on a platform with a former Ugandan child soldier mm -hmm. who, was, uh, who was telling the German press at the time how important it was that Germany, which recruits from 17, raises its age to 18. Okay. Wow. And his words were verbatim, if, if it's happening here in Germany, you're not going to stop it in Uganda. Okay. Yeah. You cannot uh, set one standard in the West uh, and then expect other places in the global South sure. to um, follow a different standard. If you want um, the global child soldiers problem solved, and in many ways that is, a lot of progress is being made there actually, um, then the, the Western states, the most powerful states, uh, the, the US, Germany, France, the, the UK, still recruit under the age of 18. Uh, they have to set the standard themselves. Yeah. Uh, and the, the longer that the British Army and Armed Forces and others insist on recruiting at 16, the harder it will be. Yeah. And that means there are thousands of children around the world who are being forcibly recruited and uh, very badly treated by their military commanders. Um, and one of the one of the sticking points there is the policies of the other powerful nations. Mm. There are child soldiers who are not being deployed, mm. and you're being trained as a soldier, and you're enlisted as a soldier. Actually, mm. it's a formal legal obligation. Not the same as a child soldier in Uganda. That's true, but nonetheless, a child soldier. We talked at the start about informed choice, which is the one of the bits of work which God forces what's going. Um, but could you talk us through some of the other um, milestone kind of contributions to to this field and this topic that Forces Watch has um, has done over the over the years? Um, well, one thing that took quite a few years to come together was our pack um, of resources for people to use in their communities and their schools um, called Take Action on Militarism. And really, this was the result of a number of years of observing the ways in which the promotion of the military is manifested in schools, colleges, public events, and how people could respond to that. 
and you can find that on the Forces Watch. So you can order a pack as well yeah. from us or from our partners in that resource, Quakers in Britain, yeah. but you can also design it on the website. And it really does see. focus on the, the very sort of practical implications of militarism in our everyday life, how the military is being promoted in the education system, which is many, many different ways. Um, and that's another area of work that we've really focused on is challenging and, and uncovering that actually because a lot of that has, has happened very much under the radar with no scrutiny at any level at local government level at national level no parliamentarians are are looking at this issue and saying why is this happening and this is a good thing and it's is that is that a symptom of militarism that people are, uh, don't want to challenge that do you think would you say yeah definitely i mean the military has been normalized to such an extent that many schools will embrace this stuff and we've done a lot of work to try and create some debate and to encourage people to challenge it and to question and that's both looking at the military going into schools or offering resources to schools but it's also wider defense interests like arms companies yeah. that are often working together with the military and these yeah. are you know able to kind of go into the education system and present themselves as neutral ethical organizations yeah. and i think that really shows how it's not just a product of militarism it also creates militarism as yeah. well because it is creating a normalization of, of defense interests mm. and people don't question what a company like the AE systems are doing if they're also providing free educational resources mm. so it's got a sort of whitewashing component as well i was just wondering whether either of you could recommend any further resources or reading that people could do if they're interested in the topic of militarism and militarization in the uk and perhaps more generally and obviously emma you mentioned cynthia enlow who's written some amazing work on that and then i would obviously mention the fortis watch publication that you wrote um david spectacle reality and resistance but um i wonder if there's some others that you can think of i think the work of uh, cynthia another cynthia cynthia coburn cynthia coburn is yeah, much, is yeah. Well and we're worth focused on at. the uk as well isn't yes it? Yeah. indeed yeah. yeah and what cynthia coburn does is draw a parallel between a militaristic nation and a nation that um, is condones or, or at least tolerates violence between people as well mm -hmm. at the interpersonal level. She draws a continuum between the violence in the home mm -hmm. and violence abroad. Mm -hmm. And she makes a very compelling argument for uh, explaining um, why you would need to um, reckon with uh, militarism if you want to take violence in the home seriously as a mm -hmm. social problem. Mm -hmm. And also we published a, a report recently after which this podcast is yes. called <laughs> Warrior Nation, yeah. uh, written by uh, Paul Dixon, um, which looks at what he calls a militarisation offensive that mm -hmm. took place since 2006 um, and looks in a lot of detail about why that came about and how it played out mm -hmm. in the, uh, politics and in civil society. And people can read that on the Forces Watch website. Yeah. If you search Warrior Nation, you'll be able to find it. And you can also buy Spectacle, Reality and Resistance on our website and elsewhere. It's also on sale in Housen's Bookshop in London, which is always well worth a visit. So David has got an exciting project currently underway. He's writing a book about hope, which will hopefully be published this or next year. He's written this book in response to hearing many people say that they feel hopeless. And because he believes that all work for social change depends on hope. I've had the privilege of reading an early draft and I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing it published. <clears throat> so please do follow David on Twitter at DavidXG to keep up with its progress. 
We hope you've enjoyed the first Warrior Nation series. We hope to be back later this year or in 2020. And there are some brilliant academics, authors, musicians, campaigners and more who we would like to interview. Please support Forces Watch in this project and in our other work by donating on our website at forceswatch.net. And please follow us on Twitter at at Forces Watch.